Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and to share prayer requests. God, to know that you are in control of these things that we've mentioned and also over the things that we haven't mentioned. God, you know the concerns and the burdens of our heart and you care for those because you care for us. I thank you for the comfort that we have in knowing that. God, I pray that you know how to Use us to respond to these requests, that we'd be sensitive to the burden that you give, that we'd be led according to your will. Lord, I pray that you forgive us of our failures, our sin. Forgive us of our trespasses against those who we care for. Help us to glorify you as we seek reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration the ultimate ministry that's provided by your cross. God, I pray that as we come together this evening to study your word, that you would grant us insight and understanding, open the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to behold the amazing truth found in your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we looked at what it means to worship through preaching. And I've tried my best to approach this from the perspective of what does it mean to sit during preaching and to experience worship? Because oftentimes when we mention worship, the only picture that we have in our head is, well, the part that we call the worship service. Realistically, though, that's not what is happening on the Lord's Day whenever we come together. In fact, worship is the overflowing of each individual's life and each individual experience in a setting where we're all together, and that's expressing itself. That looks different for everyone. (laughs) That's what makes worship so cool and so amazing, so encouraging, and so uplifting that everyone is bringing different interactions with God. For some of us, throughout the week, we experience God disciplining us or chastening us. Some of us experience God blessing and encouraging us. But when we come together on the Lord's Day, as the church gathers, whatever it is, it is a time for us to be encouraged and to be an encouragement one unto the other. So if the worship service doesn't stop whenever the music ends, if it continues on through the preaching, well, how are we supposed to interact and respond to the preaching of God's Word? This morning, you'll remember the first three points that we addressed is that preaching is, first and foremost, interactive. It should force us to ask a question. Second, Preaching is intellectual. I'm going to be honest, that one's troubling. We should be careful as we talk about preaching being intellectual, that we don't confuse that with it being nothing but seminary hubbub and nonsense speak that is devoid and divorced from actual spiritual worship of God. While there should be a tremendous amount of truth based in reason that's foundational and builds upon itself, it should be driven by worshiping not just in truth, but worshiping also in spirit. Third, preaching is intimate. It's intimate. It's not something that we're able to 
do, well, you may be able to worship by listening to a podcast. But the reality is to experience the preaching of God's word in truth, the way that God tells us to worship in truth according to his word, it requires and necessitates that it be in person. I think this is a foundational fact that you have an intimate relationship with the person who is preaching to you. That you have an intimate relationship with the person who is proclaiming God's word, that you can go to them, that you can engage with them, that you can contend with them, that you can be an encouragement to them, because that's what they're aiming to do for you. Well, what else can we learn about worship? This morning we only looked at Galatians 3 verse 2. There's three other verses. Oh, wait, three, four, five. Yeah, three other verses that I want to look at this evening. Real fast, if you have your Bibles open, let's turn to God's Word and consider what these other three verses say. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 again, but we'll pick up in verse 3 and work our way to verse 5. The Bible says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? If preaching is interactive, intellectual, and intimate, let me add to that list that preaching is irritating. It's irritating. Good preaching should be irritating. That doesn't mean that just because it's irritating, it's good, but good preaching should be irritating. Look at how Paul addresses these churches of Galatia. Are you so foolish? I'm reminded of the late R.C. Sproul, Presbyterian. We'll forgive him for that for a little bit. His most quoted line, What's wrong with you people? When you spend your time staring into the Word of God, this is reality. Man's fallen nature is uglier than it has ever been before. I've never spent time, hours, pouring over the Word of God and walked away and went, you know what? I think everything's going to be all right. There's a reason why Christians spend time in God's Word and we walk away and go, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. Because we read God's Word and we went, it was bad then, it's worse now, and it's probably going to keep getting worse. All three of those things are true. Preaching is irritating. Christian, good Christians fall asleep. They become complacent. They get tired. They get bored. They become discouraged by a world that doesn't respond to them. The greatest evangelist has been turned down and told no hundreds of thousands of times. Men of God fall away from the Word of God because they get tired. Hey, if you're doing the Bible study, the reading plan that we introduced two weeks ago, or if you're doing your own reading plan... I would go out on a limb and say, you've probably missed a day by now. What is it, the 15th? I bet you've missed a day by now. 
What happens to the good Christian with good intentions who sets out to do things? Well, if you've missed a day, I bet you got discouraged and thought, well, I'm probably not going to make it this year. Man, this is part of the struggle of being a Christian. Even Paul talks about this. I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I should do. This is part of waging war and living in a world that's fleshly. We need to say, what's wrong with you people? Or as Paul says, are you so foolish? I want you to consider real fast when Paul says, are you so foolish? He's pointing something out that I think is incredibly profound for a brother or sister who needs to encourage somebody else sitting next to them. He doesn't say, are you so stupid? This is not an issue of understanding. This is an issue, really, of sensibility. The Galatians that Paul was speaking to were foolish, not stupid. This points out that it was not an issue of their perception of the things of God or even their perception of whether they were saved by works of the law or whether they were saved by hearing with faith. This is an issue of preaching, oftentimes not being an issue of intellectual might, but basic sensibility. This is troubling. If I said this morning, and I still hold to it, preaching should be intellectual. It should be stimulating to the mind. Sure, but that's not, what, that's not the point that often holds people up. Oftentimes when I hear people who struggle to respond to the Word of God, particularly in preaching, they hide behind and they cower behind saying, well, it was just too intellectual for me or whatever. I'm just going to be honest with you guys, and you can take this or leave it. This is my opinion. I think we hide behind that. I think what really happens is this issue of sensibility. In other words, it's a lack of faith. That's what Paul's writing when he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Anyone who spent any time being a Christian walking this life and enduring what it means to become a living sacrifice before God in experiencing living out the Word of God for them will tell you with as much confidence better than I can, it's not easy. It doesn't come easy. It's work. Our flesh constantly wars against our spirit, that is the new spirit that's inside of ourselves. We are constantly in a state of trying to maintain our spiritualness with our own might and our own works. You will always fail as long as you do that. Let me take it a step further. Who you are worshiping by relying on your own strength is not God, it is yourself. Let that set in. If we are really to worship God in all that we do, then it must be Him that we turn to in every moment of struggle. Preaching is irritating because you need to be reminded that you need Him. No matter who you're at or where you're at, you need to be reminded of His ability to save you. And that requires that you acknowledge first your inability to save yourself. Preaching's irritating. Preaching is also improving. 
improving. It's improving ourselves. It's actually helping us to grow in Christian maturity. Look how Paul goes on. He says, what do you rely on to be perfected? This rhetorical question he's asking, he says, are you now perfected by the flesh? Well, obviously not. I've just been humbled. I've just acknowledged that I'm a worm before God. I just, well, in the reading plan, finished through Job and had to grapple with God saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Nope, I can't save myself, so it's not by the flesh that I think I'll be perfected. If it wasn't by the flesh that you came to know God, if it was by His Spirit calling out to you, if it was by Him softening your heart to receive the gospel, who do you think is going to help you to mature in your faith? Is it going to be your tenacity in maintaining a strict daily discipline? Is it going to be the regiment that you set out before yourself to be in control of everything? I struggle with this. I like to consider myself somebody of exceptional discipline. I can wake myself up as early as I need to. And I can be up with a good mood. That takes a lot of discipline. Well, I can factor into my life and my daily routine a regular regimen of Bible reading and prayer. Do I think it's my discipline that will save me? If I do, I'm missing the point. I won't be perfected by checking off of a list all of the things that I need to do to be a good Christian. I will only be perfected so far as I say, God, as I wake this morning, I realize that it is your breath that fills my lungs. It is your spirit that rejuvenates me. It is by your grace that my eyelids open. And it is by your will that I turn to your word. We pray for revival. Do you realize it happens every single morning? We're revived every morning. If only we will turn to God. Preaching is the improvement that the church needs because the more time we spend seeking this question, constantly reminding ourselves, asking a singularly focused question, is it true? Is it true? The more time we will train our brains to instead of looking to our own strength to turn towards God, that irritation is necessary for my improvement. Third, preaching is impactful. It's impactful. It has an impact. Look at what Paul says. He asks, have you suffered much in vain? If it is in vain. Now, that word suffered's interesting. I actually don't think I'd translate it the way that the King James and the ESV and the NIV, all of them translate it this way. So you all know I'm pretty arrogant to think that I'm smarter than the conglomerates of of uh, scholars that worked on all of those translations, right? No, I think they're right to say suffering, but I want you to consider just one alternative. The word that they translated from suffering actually just means, in the simplest understanding, to be affected by something. It means to be affected by something, not necessarily in a bad way or a detrimental way by, like suffering, but it could also be a positive way. 
It could also be a good thing. In fact, I didn't get a chance to run this down, so I might be wrong, but consider this, how closely the original word actually sounds to the word passion, pasco. Now, I looked up the origins of the word passion. It turns out it comes from Latin, whatever. So we're going to throw my theory out. But I think this connection's actually here, and it actually makes sense. To be affected by something actually pulls up in the Greek the idea of passion. To be fueled by something like my Irish, Scottish, blooded wife. I mean, this is part of who she is. She operates from a place of passion. As a consequence, it doesn't always make sense. Here's what I'm saying. Uh, To put this in simple terms, rather than reading this verse and saying that you have suffered in vain, that you've been impacted by things in vain, here's what Paul is asking. You were given the true Spirit of God because you heard the words of God preached to you by faith. Now, I don't know who's come and talked to you, who's confused you, whose Facebook channel you've been riding, or what false prophet on YouTube you've been listening to, but you were not saved by works. So I don't know what fundamental nonsense you've gotten up to to think that you are going to be able to save yourself by living a holy life that's without God's power, but you've wrong. And if you're going down that road, you've suffered things, you've experienced things, you've been a Christian, you've been changed, your ideas and perspectives about things have shifted. Has it been in vain? Did you just come around because it was the popular thing to do? Because you will not persevere until the end. Hey, if the world's getting worse from this point forward and you did it because it was popular, get ready. Tomorrow it's not going to be popular. And it's not going to keep saving you. I don't think that's the case. I don't think Paul thought that was the case for the churches of Galatia either. He's asking them, he's reasoning with them to realize where they came from. Did you suffer these things in vain? If indeed it was in vain? No, probably not. I don't think it was in vain. I think you were impacted by the Spirit of God working in your life, transforming you. And I need you now. I'm reasoning with you now. Set this nonsense aside and worship God. I think that's what he's saying. I think he's pretty compelling. Here then is what we have. To be affected by something, to be changed and to be transformed is in vain if it comes from our internal motivations. Why? Because our internal motivations condemn us. This is what Paul builds upon in the rest of this chapter. He tells us to remember, remember this morning, we looked at the rest of chapter 3, that from the works of the law, what things do you have to look forward to from the law? A curse, transgressions, bondage. If these are our motivations that they cause us to be passionate, we are all subjected together to all of these things. A curse, transgressions, bondage. Inversely, on the other side, preaching allows for us to hear by faith what prevails in all of the gospel. By setting these things aside, to hear with faith, to set them aside and to be shifted, to have sensibility. 
That's what makes us no longer fools. We're sensible. My last point. Preaching is intentional. It's intentional. It doesn't happen on accident. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you work miracles among you, do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hey, if you're looking at verse number five in your Bible, you're probably thinking, well, that's very similar to verse number two. They're different. There's one major difference between those verses that we need to see to understand what Paul has just done here. It is a perspective flip. Who's talking? Verse number two, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In verse two, Paul is talking about the person who interacts, who's engaging with all of these different things. Verse number five, it's no longer you who is the subject of the sentence. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law? You remember... Last week, we talked about preaching. We were in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 25, and one of our points was that preaching is an issue of power. I mentioned the word dynamite as the expression of exactly what Paul, or the author of Hebrews, was saying when he said he is able in reference to Christ. Here's the reason I said the word dynamite. First of all, that's exactly the word that's used there. In the original language, it's dunatai, which is where we get the English word dynamite. It literally is power. I wasn't making that up for your entertainment. This came from studying God's Word. Dunatai means mighty work or power. Watch this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, he who works miracles among you, that again is the word dunatai. This is God working power in the life of the church. Not any kind of power, a mighty power. Now, how does God work this mighty power that we mentioned is in prayer? It's also in the preaching of God's word. Where does it come from? Where does this power come from? Verse 5 answers the question for us. Does God do this by you strictly observing everything that's written in the law? Or does he do this by you hearing with faith? The Almighty God is a cooperative agent. This is amazing. I don't even know how to explain this. God, who's sovereign in all things and does things according to his personal will, is a cooperative agent. He asks for your cooperation in His work. In the preaching of His Word, in prayer, He has a will that is contingent. And this is a confusing word because He can do it whenever He wants. But the reality is, He waits. He enlists you into His will. 
Did you receive the Spirit by your own will or by His? Did He supply the Spirit to you by your will or by His? What is this power that God gives to the church in worship? Loved ones, as we look at these verses, and and now we're really only into the second week of looking at these different elements of worship as we come together. There's a reason why I think worship should be the focus for the next year. It's what we were designed to do. We were designed for no other purpose. The Westminster Confession says, What is the chief end of man? In the Catechism, the answer is, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what you were created for. You were created to worship God. We look at the biblical narrative and the entire picture of what the Bible is telling us is this ministry of reconciliation or this ministry of restoration going from a fallen condition that comes about only as a consequence of man's fallen state to be restored through the work of his son into a right relationship with God. The purpose of the law was to be our protector or our advisor, and it is completely fulfilled in the perfect life of Christ, that we would be able to worship God perfectly. So how do we do that? We pray together, because we know there's no one who will help us to worship besides God Himself. We encourage each other with the Word. We preach God's Word. I do not have license to stand before anyone and to Say whatever I want. So long as I preach what is contained in this book, I know I will make no error. I'll tell you what I'd really like to do. I'd like to just read a book of the Bible. I think my sermons should just start coming straight from the Bible. Now we have to engage with it. We have to make it apply to this world. We have to interact with it. It has to be intentional. In order for preaching to have real power and purpose, it must be intentional, not from the intentions of man, but it must come from the intentions of God who sets all of these things before us. When we come to hear preaching, and and you don't have the best preacher in the world at your church. You just don't. You've got me. What's our attitude as we come to hear preaching? And don't listen to me as your pastor, just... As a fellow churchman who also goes and enjoys to hear sermons, let me ask you a question. What is our attitude as we come to hear a sermon preached? Do we have an attitude where we sit back and we say, this might be good, it might not. Or do we have an attitude that expects the power of God to be working through the intentional effort of expositing nothing but the Word of God? I ask you that question because God's electrifying. In my experience, I think God's electrifying. When we have an attitude of expectation that the power of God is working through the faithful preaching of His Word, I think God's faithful to do these things. Not to say that your will has any power in making God do something that He doesn't already want to do, but because He is a cooperative agent in His church, demanding the observance, the the obedience, and the 
faithful worship of His church. Preaching is interactive, intellectual, intimate, irritating, improving, impactful, and intentional. These things do not happen just because a preacher is faithful. These things happen because the congregation is ready to hear. One last bonus point. We often talk in our Christian walk about the word obedience. In the original language, there is no equivalent for the word obedience. In the languages that God chose to write the Bible, there is no word for obedience. We get our concept of obedience from the Roman concept of obedience. In Hebrew, the word that God chooses to use, the most close equivalent that we have, is actually the word hear. Listen, Shema. It doesn't mean turning around and doing everything that we're told exactly as we're told to do it with a good attitude. It means listening, contending, and responding. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Contend with it. Walk away and apply it to your life. I struggle with this. It's interesting that we're talking about preaching this week as our focus of worship. One of the things that you'll hear preachers talk about is how they make application in their sermons. Generally, there's two ways to do it. You make very clear, very specific application, and you count how many people do exactly what you told them to do. I don't think there's anything wrong with that from time to time. My personal philosophy is, God's bigger than I am. And I generally believe that you get out of things what you put into them. You want to get more out of a sermon? Put more into it. Contend with it. Listen. Hear. I don't know what God's application is for everyone who's sitting in a congregation as I preach. What I do know is that if you walk out those doors and nothing changes in your life... You did not listen. Sometimes the fault's on me. Sometimes I'm not clear. But the reality is the responsibility of responding to God's word is not your pastor's job. The responsibility of being obedient to God's word is not your pastor's job to do it for you. It's his job to do it for himself. If we're really going to worship in preaching, we must respond every time. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege that we have to read it, to hold it, to study it, and to know you through it. God, help us to know how to be your people, to be a people of the book and to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.